Hello and a big warm welcome to you. Welcome to the Aware Parenting Podcast. My name's Marion Rose, PhD, and today I am so delighted to have on the podcast with me a very dear friend and colleague, Claire Louise Brumley, also PhD. So it's a PhD, PhD conversation today. I'm just so excited about this conversation that we're going to be having today. So welcome, Claire Louise. Thank you so much, Marion. So I wonder if you might be willing to start off with sharing a little bit about your background and why we're going to be having the conversation we're having today. Yes. I have a background as a therapist and I also did postgraduate training in nutrition and integrative medicine. And that's the area I then continued to do further study and did my PhD. I was at the School of Integrative Medicine here in Melbourne at Swinburne University. And I had a pretty free run to choose my topics. I was fascinated to understand optimal human health without getting caught up in, oh, it could be this or it could be that. And I just came to this understanding that I need to look at our evolutionary history to understand what we are most adapted to. So the title of my PhD is Evolutionary Medicine and Optimal Human Health. And I've also trained as an aware parenting instructor. So we are going to bring that lens to our conversation today about the physiology of sleep and stress from an evolutionary perspective and an aware parenting perspective. Oh, I have such a big yum. (laughs) We have such an overlap, don't we, in things that we're passionate about. So I really think bringing together all of these things, of course, from an aware parenting context, but our evolutionary history and optimal health and stress and trauma and the fight, flight, freeze response and really understanding the physiology and all of this, how it really relates to sleep. So... Do you want to start off with um, why an evolutionary perspective? Mm, Yeah. I have enjoyed listening to your sleep series in this podcast and I loved your term. You talked about us as we're human animals. Of course we are. Like it's bizarre to think of any other language. And yet we do struggle with that concept because we're so disconnected from our natural living conditions. And there's that kind of language. We're kind of living in this constructed captivity And I laugh when I think about sleep. It's like no other animal needs to be told how to fall asleep. And yet we kind of really struggle in the context of the modern stresses that we are facing. No other animal does chronic tiredness. So why an evolutionary perspective? That's just a quick introduction. I think there's two things we're going to mostly cover in our conversation and hopefully bring as much to this conversation as we can think of. But we're going to look at what our biological needs are through an evolutionary lens and think about some of the inevitable losses that are present in our lives today and think specifically about sleep in that context. And then we're also going to talk about the physiology of sleep and cortisol in that mix and all the multitude of ways we muck it up in our contemporary lives. So why an evolutionary perspective? It's just that really simple premise that all living things, all living things, are healthiest when their life circumstances most closely match the environment and the conditions to which their genetics were selected and to which they had 
time to evolve to the environment. So when we look at humans, it's over 99% of our hominin evolution. Of course, we lived in nature. We hunted and gathered our food. We lived in extended family groups, often 30 to 40 people. And, you know, that was just the context for how we're designed. And so I like it as a paradigm because it gives me that filter lens for going, okay, so what do we actually need? What are we actually most adapted to? How does that resonate from your perspective? Mm, I love it so much. What I'm thinking of as I hear you speak is how easy it can be in our modern lives to really be in the present time and really to be in our conditioning and particularly around sleep. I think about this a lot when I don't know about you, but when I was pregnant and just having the conversations with people and so many of the conversations were things like, have you got a cart? And the cultural conditioning has just seen that's the thing, isn't it? If you have a baby, you have a cot. And mm. really in terms of uh, evolutionary history, how recent the invention of cots is. I love <laughs> how Aletha Salter talks about you know, how adaptable we are as human beings, that we can survive in all kinds of different um, cultural beliefs and different climates and so on. If we're surviving, it doesn't actually mean we're thriving. And how much of what we live in and the cultural conditioning that most of us have had often for many, many generations, apparently it was the Romans who first bought in cribs next to the bed, for example, and then apparently it was the Roman Catholic Church in about the 13th century who banned or strongly recommended perhaps mothers to not sleep with their babies. So if we have a European heritage, that might be a lot of intergenerational conditioning around where babies sleep. And if we live in a more colonized country, that might be more recent, that kind of conditioning. But that's powerful, isn't it? And mm what I love about your work is really to help us see okay what is actually optimal and what are we doing now and without any as you know in my work without any guilt sticks or shame sticks because of course we've been conditioned in these ways particularly you know over many many generations to believe that this is just the normal way for babies to sleep or children to sleep to actually see more clearly how much of this is really what is most helpful for sleep and how much of this or is run by all kinds of other things. Mm. It kind of gives us a, I don't know if this is a nice language, but the goalposts, it helps me kind of go, what are we actually aiming for here? What actually is optimal? So, yeah, I'm with you. And I heard what you're sharing about Aletha's input to this understanding, and she also has used some of the source material that I used for my thesis which is looking at ethnographies, anthropologists who've studied those remaining hunter-gatherer communities from like the 40s, 50s and 60s. And, you know, still through a Western lens that those anthropologists collected data. And the thing which sort of came out from my looking at that information was that there's actually, even though like this huge ecological difference, like depending on whether you're in polar regions or around the equator, in terms of lifestyle and food supply and not to mention all the various sort of cultural differences around different clans and tribes got up to. But there's far greater similarity in the lifestyles of all hunter-gatherer societies, like worldwide, 
than there are between our contemporary Western lifestyles and those afforded by our hunter-gatherer ancestry. And you've got to be careful not to romanticise things either. Like some things are really, really hard. But there's that question of what's the discordance in our modern lives and have we actually stretched beyond our biological limits? And, you know, there's a lot of stress burden which comes from an animal species being stretched beyond their biological limits. And tragically, we are in a mass extinction. So we've got to go, hey, there's pretty strong discordance going on. But this is about sleep. But why we need to talk about stress in this context is because stress response is the it's the variable in feeling relaxed enough to feel safe enough and connected enough to sleep. <laughs> so there's a link. Yes, I love how you word that. And actually, just before you were naming that too, I was thinking one of the reasons I love, as you know, to really understand this evolutionary perspective and the bigger, wider cultural historical piece is for parents actually to see, like, if if you are finding your baby or your child's sleep challenging or your own sleep as well, of like it's of course because what we're living in in this culture is so far away from what we've evolved to thrive in and what I love that it does is it can really help people who perhaps are picking up what I call the guilt sticks or the self-judgment sticks about you know why is this so hard and am I doing something wrong that kind of dialogue to of course it's so hard because we live in a culture that is so far away from actually what's supportive to parents let alone what's supportive for our sleep so I really love that piece as well Mm, I think you said that beautifully I find it helpful to think about why look at an evolutionary perspective when I actually do a kind of deep time understanding about our evolution and I'm going to do this really briefly in just a couple of sentences simply to understand the time required for evolution and adaptation. And back right at when primates first appeared on Earth, it was about 65 million years ago. And it was somewhere around between 400,000, maybe 150,000, that modern human beings, as we would self-recognise ourselves, came into existence, migrated out of Africa and had an incredible capacity to live in such a diverse number of ecological niches right around the planet, but always living this hunter-gatherer lifestyle. So the rate of change in our environment now, it's really, really fast. It's really been the last few hundred years that Uh, Think about the Industrial Revolution that brought electricity to our homes and this is so relevant to sleep. We began to live more indoors. We spend often by need now a lot of our lives interacting with screens and it's a really big ask on our body's physiology to, like we cannot possibly, our DNA can't catch up to that rate of change like in a couple of hundred years. And so it's this constant question in my mind and it's this filter lens I use around, okay, so what can I do? And that's where I find what you've brought 
to this sleep series, Marion, and what aware parenting brings is this really solid understanding of for sleep, we need to feel tired, we need to be ready to sleep, we need to feel relaxed, and we need to feel safe and connected. So I'd love to move into talking about sleep within this evolutionary context as a model for optimal. Are you happy to move there, Marion? I'd love to. Okay. So sleep's a core need for all living creatures. Melatonin is our sleep hormone, and that's actually the greatest antioxidant we have. So there's a huge repair and regeneration that goes on when we're sleeping. And the brain in deep sleep, it actually shrinks by about 60%. And the cerebrospinal fluid that moves right you know, through your spinal column and through your brain, it washes the brain and removes toxins that are built up between cells during the day. So we're going to talk a lot more about melatonin, but there's this idea that sleep is absolutely fundamental and it's not just humans, it's absolutely every living creature. So how sleep's induced in our bodies is it's environmentally determined. The sun sets in the natural model, the sun sets, so it's light dependent. That drop in light is an input for the body. And interesting, not what it's not talked about a lot. It's also temperature dependent. There's that drop in temperature when the sun sets. And we often in our sort of modern lives, we use that mechanism by you know, having, a, having a warm bath for the baby or we have a shower before bed and we raise our body temperature and then allow it to fall to then feel sleepy and have that uh, conversion of melatonin. And so in terms of the physiology, what actually happens in the sleep-waking cycle? There's an amino acid called tryptophan. We eat that in our diet. We also make it inside of us. And in the normal metabolism, about 95% of tryptophan is used uh, it's called for metabolism and energy. That's the, what's called the kynurenine pathway, for anyone who's curious. About only 5% of it is converted into serotonin. That's our calming, antidepressant, waking up hormone in the morning. And we need full spectrum light for that to occur. And then it's serotonin that's converted into melatonin of an evening in response to that drop in light and temperature. And the really interesting part is this conversation is that it's elevations in cortisol. That's a stress hormone that pushes tryptophan, that, you know, the original substrate, more down a kynurenine pathway, which makes sense because that's for energy. And we can talk in more depth around what raises cortisol, but really briefly, it's because it's stress, it's light, you think about screen use, and it's also increases in blood sugar. And it's very subtly attuned to cortisol, this sleep-wake cycle, this serotonin-melatonin cycle. Only a like subtle 1% rise in cortisol. It removes in that moment, it removes about a fifth of the substrate from tryptophan to be converted through into melatonin. So therefore, we really do need to understand the role of stress and releasing from stress to enable the natural physiological unfolding of optimal melatonin levels for sleep. Did that make sense? 
Oh, it made so much sense. I love hearing that. And you know, physiology isn't my forte and it goes in one ear and out the other. And I never remember any of the other words because that's just not my, my thing this lifetime. But I love every time you talk about this, I'm like, oh, yes. And to me already, I'm thinking, oh, I know. And that's why in a way parenting, and as we will talk about, and as we've been sharing a lot in this series, the why it's so different and why it's so important to differentiate between things that we might do to babies or children that might actually be bypassing the natural release process that because there are those stress hormones and the after effects of stress sitting in the body so just so appreciate what you're bringing here i love that in the aware baby elisa talks about the only study that's been done looking at the chemical content of tears that was back in the 80s it would be lovely if someone wanted to do another study and that idea of tears those researchers found that they contained the technical languages catecholamines but that's that means adrenaline and noradrenaline and the hormone ACTH which is adrenocorticotropic hormone and that's the ACTH is what the pituitary gland releases in the brain and it flows through the bloodstream and signals to the adrenal organs to make cortisol but it actually takes about 10 minutes from the time at which the body perceives it's under stress, releases the ACTH and makes its way to the adrenals to then start pumping out cortisol. And so there's this, if this is true, it presents this ideal opportunity and perhaps it's the purpose of stress-relieving tears to actually cry out the ACTH so that the body doesn't cascade into pumping out cortisol, which takes hours to be released from the body because the whole purpose of cortisol is to meet our need for survival in that moment. And cortisol, the whole purpose of it is to direct resources away from the body's maintenance and regenerative processes and reproductive purposes towards all the systems required for active movement because we don't need to repair the body when we're trying to stay alive. That's the trade-off. And if the body doesn't do just a little bit of cortisol, it just pumps it out. If it's under stress, it's an on or off process. So coming back to that idea of what I think one of the most powerful offerings of aware parenting is if you're with a child and they're teetering on the brink of those tears of holding that space in that moment, so that if this hypothesis is true, they can excrete the ACTH and then they don't have to deal with the effects of cortisol through their body because that takes a lot longer to get rid of. And this is only one study we're looking at and it hasn't been replicated. So if it's not so, we can still hold the strong understanding that the body is wired to release stress and aware parenting responds directly to that. But that's the... In my interpretation, that's the whole purpose of aware parenting, to support our lovely beings to feel connected to their bodies, soft in their bodies, present in their bodies, so that they're able to respond to what's around them from who they are. Yes, 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 yes. I don't know if you can hear the little puppy on my lap snoring. I always just love it in the sleep series. There's so much snoring puppies. Anyway. What I would love to add to that is 
really coming back to what you're talking about is really the amazing wisdom of our bodies and how we really have evolved for that optimal health. And what I always think is, isn't this an amazing system that we have that our bodies know, but obviously babies and children, let's talk about them because that's the sleep mm. we're talking about. Their bodies know how to move into fight or flight in order to, to escape, to run, to fight. And obviously for babies, there's not a lot they can do. So they've got freeze as a possibility or dissociation as we talk about in aware parenting. But since sleep is so important and so vital for our well-being as is a non-stressed body of course we of course we also have innately the inbuilt processes to release that stress from the body and uh, at the moment i'm talking about that as i'm calling it the relaxation response and it's the same response as healing from stress and trauma and it's really what all we're talking about here in terms of practically supporting that natural response that babies and children have to feel relaxed enough to be able to sleep in a way that really brings all those restorative effects that you talk about. I remember when you told me recently about the brain shrinking 60% and I was like, I was incredulous. <laughs> That's just so amazing. But of course, it's like when we really trust our bodies and the incredible wisdom, like, of course, we have these innate things in place. Like, of, of course, we would have these and we do have them. And yet, because of, I would say, both the culture that we live in and the cultural conditioning and practices that we experience, we are then really fighting against those natural relaxation responses so much of the time, as well as having so much more stress going into our systems particularly as babies and children, as we're going to talk about, I think, in terms of, as you said, about the disconnection and the electricity and all of those things. I've forgotten where I was going there. But anyway, just, just mm. like, you know me, I love, I love yeah. to emphasize if sleep is not optimal to really look what is going on in this deep level. And of course, our bodies are innately wise. And how can we really support that natural wisdom while still living in this modern culture, which is so far away from our hunter-gatherer origins. And I'd love to add to what you just said about the relaxation response as an inbuilt mechanism. I believe it's the healing response, period. And that's what Gabo Mate's work's about. And I think what I really appreciate about utilising this concept of what our evolutionary context has been and how we are designed to be and the context in which we're designed to be, although we are not that anymore, and quite frankly, a lot of us wouldn't want to be either, but we can still quite quickly in any moment recognise what need is perhaps needing to be addressed. And if you think about your list of three things from a sleep need, one of the first ones, I mean, is relaxation, but to feel safe and connected. And when you think of our ancestral past, one thing that never happened was humans sleeping alone, irrespective of age. It never happened. And it wasn't even little groups of four or even as some kind of more optimal today model of a mum and a bub in a breastfeeding relationship co-sleeping together. Like that's pretty, pretty cool when we can pull that off today. And yet that is not sleeping in a group of 30 or 40 other people 
where you've got an elder holding, you know, a lookout for the safety of the group. And the very different kind of vigil that's required in the body. And so I I kind of come to this really soft place of, wow, we're carrying a lot, especially mothers caring for young children. It's really a lot. It really is such a lot, isn't it? And again, I think that's why having this bigger historical context is so important and this evolutionary perspective, because again, rather than so many mothers really hitting themselves with those guilt sticks, you know, why is it so hard? And But really to think about, even if it is a mother and a baby co-sleeping, as you said, like that is her doing the job of 40 people yeah. <laughs> of different ages and elders and other mothers and aunties and other children. I mean, in all contexts, and I think that is often talked about, but I don't think it is so often talked about in sleep what an amazing thing it is to be really taking responsibility for often more than one child in baby and, and young children as well. It's huge, isn't it? And the other thing I was writing an article about it this morning and just thinking, if you think about a hunter-gatherer setup and you think about a baby on their own, like it just, it's just obvious and clear, isn't it? That that baby's survival likelihood is just going to be so much lower if they're just on their own somewhere it's just in no way would it have made any sense at all for a tiny baby who cannot even if they go into the fight flight response who can't especially before they can even crawl they can't get away even when they can crawl they're very slow even when they can run they're still really little so just thinking about how often babies and children in this culture are going to be exactly as you said, not feeling safe enough to go to sleep, not being able to use, well, maybe trying to use the fight flight response or not trying, obviously it's an unconscious thing, and then needing to move into the freeze response because they can't actually do much to protect themselves and how often then that is mm, not understood, the deep difference between the relaxation that happens, the deep relaxation when we've taken into account these three things in my little list, the tired, connected and truly relaxed because of working with that natural relaxation response and how different that is from something that happens when baby might be tired, but they might not have connection and they certainly are not going to be able to be relaxed and they may also have feelings from the day or from their birth and then going to need to mildly dissociate And that is a very different state to be sleeping in, isn't it? A state of Mm. deep relaxation compared to us. Yeah. Compared to a state of more of a dissociative state. Yeah. Yeah. Entirely. Well, from a physiological point of view, there's a different level of cortisol in the body. We've already mentioned what happens when there's a, even a subtle increase in cortisol, the body shifts away from the same level of regeneration, but also the, a baby or all of our needs for sleep is so great there only is one choice that remains like we have to meet the need for sleep that's non-negotiable so we the system has to disassociate to make that become possible even if it's suboptimal for regeneration and that's where like perhaps this is controversial i'm curious to hear how you respond to it if there's an alone sleeping baby because of our no judgment because of our cultural setup 
And it's hard when there's only two adults in a home. Sometimes that's why babies are sleeping alone, not because there's anything unsafe. It's just the setup. And so that baby is going to probably use a control pattern of some kind to meet their need for sleep. So I wouldn't want to be taking away a control pattern that a baby is using for sleep to meet that core need if they're sleeping alone. What do you think about that? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I would never be taking a control pattern away anyway from a baby yeah. unless, of course, we're there to listen to all the feelings that that control pattern or that way that they've been repressing or dissociating from feelings has been doing. And so if it, maybe a baby has a dummy or a child has a dummy, that's often going to be a process where there's going to be a lot of feelings sitting in their bodies that that dummy's been holding in. So I think that's so important to hold in mind that, of course, and this is a, a central part of it isn't it is that the ability to dissociate is a really wonderful thing like we wouldn't have mm. survived without it that's why I love necessary are, <laughs> so necessary and when people yeah. are new to aware parenting and I certainly remember that for myself in the early years I thought control patterns were like oh no I don't no I don't want my children to have them and I you know I judged myself and what I really came very clear about very quickly is that amazing things we wouldn't have survived but that doesn't mean just kind of accepting them and putting up with them. Yes, of course, in aware parenting, we can support a baby or child to need them less and to be able to express those feelings instead so they can feel deeply calm and present rather than mildly dissociated. But absolutely, a baby on their own is likely to be needing to dissociate mildly in some way, shape or form. And that's vital for them to sleep, as you say. And also to remember, I love what Aletha writes about in her newest book, Healing Your Traumatized Child, about dissociation that, number one, it's kind of pleasant. As anyone knows, if you've kind of been gazing off, or all of us as adults have a lot of ways of repressing or mildly dissociating from feelings, but it's also addictive. So, and you would be able to probably explain all the hormonal correlates of that. But, you know, to really remember these forms of dissociation, they help us, but they're, again, in terms of what we're talking about, what's optimal sleep isn't going to be optimal and because the baby and or the child is going to have more and more and more more accumulated feelings that is going to be affecting the quality of the sleep it is going to mean they're probably going to be waking up more and more often even if they're on their own they're probably going to be waking up and then using whatever the thing is to mildly dissociate again enough to go to sleep and their behavior in the day is going to be affected the stress and tension is still going to be sitting in their body so we can see the beauty and value of these processes while also understanding in aware parenting how we can help babies and children feel more relaxed. So that helps them sleep. It helps that restorative sleep. And of course, it helps them in the daytime as well. And it helps the long-term emotional well-being. So it really is both that healing response and that relaxation response that go together. And I also really appreciate what you said around the control pattern like the critical difference, both in aware parenting and in our evolutionary context, was connection. In aware parenting, there's a parent listening to the feelings that come up. And hopefully there's connection throughout the night. And that was the absolute norm throughout all our evolution, barring the last couple of thousand years at a stretch. Yes. And again, it makes so much sense. I'm sure you've heard from many parents over the years and I have who've been so desperate and I completely understand your years of no sleep or 
just such broken nights and being told that controlled crying is not harmful and those kinds of things. And hearing from so many parents like that, that really deep internal struggle, that the sense of this and not rightness about it in their bodies and that cultural conditioning again of so many generations of it's okay and babies don't feel and they're okay. And mm. I was even looking at the research again recently that it was only relatively recently that babies were given anesthetics when they were operated upon. It was believed they couldn't actually feel pain for pain. I mean, Gosh. it's just... And really our understanding of babies and children, as you know, I can go get on my soapbox here is still first. <laughs> we live in this uh, still adultism yeah. reigns to actually think about what a little baby might experience or a two-year-old or whatever age. And I also think about, and again, I want to emphasize I'm sending so much love and compassion, deep acceptance to what anyone does in relation to sleep and if you have put your baby or child in a cot like of course because we are inundated with that conditioning right from when we were babies so of course I understand that and I often think about I have been thinking recently for a toddler who's perhaps in their own room in a cot they wake up in the night the inability to be able to get out and yes they can call for help but the inability to be able to actually move into fight or flight, they can't actually run, they can't actually escape from that. I mean, that all of those things that may be apparently small, they do have an effect. Yes, there's two things you've said there that I'd love to respond to. That first one about I have huge compassion for parents in our nuclear family context because there is on some level that need to get a deep restorative sleep, especially if there's been a lot of broken sleep, which is, you know, a fair chunk of it is normative. But there isn't, imagine in that hunter-gatherer model where there's a breastfeeding mother next to a baby and they don't have to keep any vigil about their safety. Like the quality of that mother's sleep is going to be very different. So it doesn't surprise me that in our culture, under desperate circumstances, some mothers are, just take my baby away, just give me a night where I don't have to hold the vigil. Like that's a really different reality. So that's why I actually have a lot of compassion for the disconnection that we now as parents find ourselves in because the support systems are pretty thin on and even if we've got amazing family support from grandparents and aunts and uncles it's likely not 30 or 40 other people whom everyone knows intimately and there's multiple secure attachment figures there so that was one thought I had I think the other thing you mentioned was our adult-centric culture and I think that's a understandable result of a childhood that's required a lot of disassociation because there's just not the same capacity to put yourself in a baby's shoes and see it through another lens. My two thoughts. I love, yeah, those two thoughts. Yes. And I think that's why I'm so grateful having had a decade of really exploring babies and infant development and so on to actually be constantly putting myself in a baby's shoes that was so so helpful coming into aware parenting and it was easy to put myself in my daughter's shoes that was easy actually and yeah I'm so with you about that 
that why the culture is adultist because exactly as you said I'm just repeating you I think it's so important most of us have dissociated so much from the pain of not getting our needs met and not getting our feelings heard enough that of course we don't want to it's painful to actually think my gosh what might a baby be feeling if they're left alone or what might a child be feeling and let's think of it in the other perspective as well we haven't talked about this so much but if they have got a whole lot of big feelings and parent again for all the most loving of reasons is doing everything possible to try and distract 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 these are really uncomfortable feelings that the majority of us have sitting in our bodies for decades Mm. absolutely did we want to talk a little bit as well i know you're talking about electricity and i know this is a bit of one of our passions as well but i remember when my daughter was a baby, so she's 21 now. And so I was practicing aware parenting right from the beginning in terms of go sleeping and carrying her everywhere and breastfeeding lots. And you know, we had very low stresses and I had very low stress in my pregnancy. I'm very, very grateful. There's lots of support financially. And so when I started listening to her feelings, I was really shocked and surprised actually I thought oh my gosh how can she have any feelings mm-hmm. how can she be have any stress how can there be any upset feelings because it's just you know <laughs> it's lovely and it was lovely we were having a lovely time but just to think about you and I've been doing I know you've been thinking about this for decades but I love our conversations thinking about just the really the amount that is lost and I remember thinking about it then in terms of just being in houses I know there's all this work nowadays about grounding and about all of these very subtle and not so subtle things that we do not have most of us in our lives or we need to kind of work to bring in where we're in houses there is electric light there's uh, electromagnetic radiation we're eating food that has often nothing to do with the seasons we're not connected with the seasons most people have heating or air conditioning there's a lot of stuff that happens that means we really are disconnected. And I remember thinking even back then, I wonder how much of her feelings are because of all of this stuff, which is so unnatural, really. Mm. And so, again, not what you'd have experienced as hunter-gatherers. And again, like you said, yeah, there's so much that's wonderful, isn't it? We're very comfortable, but there, <laughs> there is such an extra amount of stress that babies and children will experience, which, of course, they can release with aware parenting. But I think just really acknowledging that and diet and all kinds of other things too I wonder if you want to say something Uh, I'd love to I I think you're a bit of a model of optimal for many of us listening so to hear that your daughter still had all those feelings it really speaks to I know something at the core of human experience that going from the warm internal that total connection to external it's massive That's sort of the whole of what our existence tends to grapple with for this lifetime. But more specifically, what you're talking about, I mean, perhaps I could bring, I don't know, a bit of the physiology, given that's one of the things we're wanting to do in this conversation. And thinking about the stresses, the environmental stresses, multi-level ones that you've just listed, which aren't part of our evolutionary norm. Um, And I remember in my thesis just simply talking about food, like I did some analyses looking at what I thought was a pretty amazing organic food diet and it didn't even slightly compare to the nutritional density of using wild foods. So I really got that there is a lot that is causing our bodies 
to perhaps be suboptimal, but more than that, actually feel stressed. And at that physiological level, and look, some people might be familiar with this language. If it's not of interest, just ignore this part. But the stress response turns on really easily in the body because it's designed to rapidly unfold and respond to the perceived danger. It's really metabolically costly to turn it off. And the stress response turns off by the body uses what's called methyl groups. It's a very simply a carbon and hydrogen atoms which are abundant in the universe so that the body uses what's abundant. And it's nutritionally dependent. And if we are turning on the stress response multiple times each day, which is probably likely, I remember reading one study some time ago, that there was an estimate that was about 50 times a day. I think that would be unheard of in our ancestral past. Like if it got turned on, it was pretty damn significant. But because we know the stress response, it's not some halfway, oh, this might be a little bit scary. It's like it's on and it rapidly turns on, but it takes a lot to remethylate it and turn it off. And if we're doing that multiple times a day because of all these little stresses, be it through, I mean, we can be quite dismissive of things like dirty electricity or EMF or whatever, but they're constant, subtle stresses and they use up our methyl groups, which means that there's some people who are, and we know this, there's a lot of individual variation around this as well, but to turn off the stress response takes energy and it takes resources. And that's why the what if adults will use the language of walking around tired and wired? Babies have the same experience and that's why aware parenting's understanding of the relaxation response, which I'd love to call the healing response because a little segue here, like in the modern hunter-gatherer societies that have been studied, there's minimal evidence of chronic degenerative disease. Whereas that's just ubiquitous, particularly in the ageing population now. And so what's the effect of that kind of lifetime of subtle elevations in cortisol, subtle stress response? It's going to have health effects. So I, what I appreciate about aware parenting is I'm much more interested in prevention than a rehabilitation model. It's much harder to do therapy in adulthood and deal with some of this stuff. But with a baby, you can really simply and elegantly you know the principles of attachment theory be connected aware parenting is a form of attachment parenting we can stay connected and when we're connected we can watch we can observe what's going on and we can follow their lead with because they've already got this deeply programmed into them like every animal does it only gets messy when we get disassociated from it all and insert other props to help manage feeling okay so a baby will cry they'll laugh they'll rage this is your terrain marion i'd love you to speak to that you know i actually wanted to go rewind back Mm. a little bit before what you were talking about and i do want to say i've coined this new term relaxation response but what i'm saying is it's exactly the same as the healing response it just happens Mm. to happen when we are tired again we're talking about babies and children but for us too it happens when babies and children are tired 
it's in exactly all of these things that we're talking about so that they can release stress from their body so that they can actually have that restorative sleep. So I'm kind of playing on words so that the relaxation response is exactly the same thing as the healing response. So I just want to confirm that. Yeah. And the other thing is I thought before we go more into the actual what happens, I wonder if we might talk a little bit again about what actually some of the other things that happen so that to really hold these in mind because there are I agree with you I love prevention and also even in terms of these things there are things that we can do to mean that babies and children feel less stress in relation to and around going to bed and bedtime and those can be things that again we're both passionate about in terms of like light uh, blue light and red light, dirty electricity, diet, things like the fibers used in pajamas and bedding, bedding is what it's called, and yeah. washing powders and things like that. So if you think about it, if a baby or a child is experiencing stress, again, they might be in kind of micro ways, but on all of those different levels, maybe there's a fairly toxic washing powder, maybe there's the dirty electricity, maybe they're eating foods that aren't really helpful for their gut, maybe they're breastfeeding and the mother's eating food that actually isn't really suited. If we add up all of those things together, that's a lot, isn't it? So again, to empower us as parents, know it can be hard to change these things and it can cost money as well, but there are still things that we can do even with minimal financial outlay to, to really try and aim to minimize at least some of these things. I feel really sorry for modern parents, us as well, because we never had to think about these things. Like living in nature, it's a very clean environment, not so clean now, unfortunately, but I mean, that's part of the tragedy in the story that's unfolding for human evolution. But yeah, exactly what you said. There's differences in the wild food supply compared to even a pretty optimal one today, but we've got to work with what we've got to the best of our ability. There's differences like sleep under animal furs, not I don't know, synthetic blankets, light. It was the sun. <laughs> EMF, it was the sun. <laughs> it's just this very powerful, quick frame of reference to going, is this healthy or is this not so great? And how do I find something that makes sense and integrate this information into my everyday life? I think we need to really understand, as I said at the start, our goalposts because then it's like we know what we're moving towards and we can watch what happens for the baby, the child and ourselves in that process because there's the other side of things which happened if we were in nature sitting around a campfire. I don't want to, as I said, I don't want to glorify, you know, some of the tragic things that would go on in our ancestral past. But in terms of this conversation around what we have evolved to need, there's all the campfire light, it's all that red, amber spectrum, all the storytelling, all the connection, the music, the chanting, like we've lost that from our world. And so thank goodness we have Aware Parenting's understanding that says we can follow our children's lead and we can run around the house and play attachment games before bed. We can, what I do with my daughter, we have these beautiful in-bed games. And uh, that's the other thing I also wanted to mention from thinking about 
the natural model versus what we're kind of trying to contend with now, we've also lost a lot of security. Like we now have to think about having, you mentioned money, having money to put a secure roof over our head so we're safe, having money to buy the quality nutrient-dense food, which was our norm. And I kind of, I really feel into that very compassionately because, ouch, that's a really big deal and big realities, particularly in a culture that doesn't recognise the huge amount of time, energy, resources mothers are giving to society but aren't financially rewarded for. And in terms of, again, safety and sense of security, you know, you know when you go out camping and you get after a while, after a week or two or three, you start getting familiar with the sounds and the body starts, it becomes really, you become at home in the natural world. Many of us aren't at home in the natural world. And our culture creates a lot of scary around walking, walking around, you know, at night or whatever, but all things that just weren't part of our background. So I'm just really kind of feeling into even if nothing goes wrong, so-called wrong, there's all these background stresses simply because of our modern lives. And I do believe we've, yeah, we've outstretched our biological limits for coping with them by and large. Like, I mean, survival, reproduction of the species might not yet be threatened, but actually, yeah, actually there's plenty of evidence saying that reproduction rates and infertility are declining and infertility is increasing, sadly. Mm. Yes, 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 as you talk about that and the camping and I'm thinking about, as you know, Claire Louise and I have shared a little bit as well about, I don't even know, maybe a couple of years ago, I'm back into that thing, was it two or was it three, you know, no one else cares, it was was a few years ago, Mm. I started turning off lights at night and I now have mostly red lights, so if if anyone's ever done a a session or a course or anything with me, I have red lights at night time and then starting to turn off circuits and every time. So what I want to say about that is in terms of like what you were saying about each of these stresses is that I can feel straight away my body relaxes more if I turn on the normal lights, which I don't anymore. But when I was playing with that, I could feel that immediate relaxation that there's that one less thing to be alert about. And then maybe another year later, I turned off all the light circuits. So we just have these lamps that charge up in the day. Again, as soon as it happened, I could feel another level of relaxation in my body. And then recently I've been turning off actually all the circuits at night apart from the fridge. And again, oh my gosh, the <laughs> I am loving it so much. Like whenever we have a power cut, I can straight away go, ah. Oh. And every night at the moment, it's just like, I feel so different. It really is like, much more like the camping experience so again really uh, what i love to add there they're like of course babies and children have so many feelings to express they have you talked about the 50 times of the stress response being activated and that's huge isn't it Mm -hmm. i think so often when parents come to aware parenting and i know i certainly did as i was saying i mean god why so many feelings but it just makes so much sense that they have all of these things that they are, that they're having this, the stress response in response to, of course, they've got a lot of feelings to express. Of course, they've got a lot of stress to release from their bodies. Of course, they need to do a lot of playing and a lot of laughing and a lot of crying and raging with their loving support because they are 
trying to heal from that. They want to feel relaxed in their bodies. They want to feel more like how we feel when we're camping. They don't want to be mm. agitated and antsy. They don't want to be wriggling around in bed. And I think that can make such a difference, can't it, for parents to really remember babies and children do not like feeling agitated and antsy any more than we like feeling that way and any more than we like having three hours of them kind of wriggling around in bed or waking up every hour or whatever it is they don't they, it's not enjoyable for them it's not enjoyable for any of us this stressed state mm -hmm. it's one of the most unenjoyable things and deep relaxation is just it's so pleasurable isn't it it's so enjoyable mm -hmm. I imagine there's some parents listen, listening to this going, oh, no, even if nothing's wrong, there's all this stress. We're going to have to do all this play and this thing. <laughs> I'd love to say quite our bodies know exactly what they need. You talk about what you just shared then. You can feel the difference. And we're in a culture that does everything to try and not feel. And this is the gift of aware parenting. It's all about feeling. We can trust what we're feeling. When we feel that drop, as you're talking about turning the circuit board off, it's like, oh, I can trust that. that that's helpful because you can feel it. And children are even more sensitive than adults. And so we can really trust and watch what babies respond to, what children respond to. And they will quite quickly, oh, there's a lot, reminds me, there's this beautiful release last Sunday, an episode of Bluey, which is a, animation television series in Australia it's called relax and poor mum can't relax she's on holidays and the kids know exactly what to do they get to the holiday hotel and they're immediately wanting to I don't want to give it away perhaps but play and they want a bubble bath and then eventually they open the doors to the outside and it's like the beach let's go <laughs> it's like kids know how to relax I wanted to sort of ease that feeling of, oh, my gosh, there's so much stress in our modern day world. Yes, there is. Yes, we can acknowledge that. Yes, we can have a lot of compassion for ourselves with that. And we all know how to move towards our relaxation and healing responses. And when we get a bit lost, we can, we can kind of use little checklists with ourselves, like what would our ancestors be doing now? What can I do to nourish myself? How could I fuel my body so it is strong and resilient? How can I listen to what I need to feel relaxed because sleep will be an inevitable result, deep, beautiful sleep? Oh, I love, love, love that. Yes. Mm -hmm. You've listened to most, if not all, of the sleep series. Have I talked about the One Direction story with my daughter on this? I can't remember whether I have. Or can you recall? Oh, my dilemma is I've enjoyed listening to you for <laughs> close to a decade. So I get very, <laughs> I'm not clear. I don't know, but I do remember the story. Would you oh, like to share it? I'd love to share it anyway, even if I yeah. have said it before, but it just really helped me shift myself so this was about a decade ago and it was one direction which is a teen band that all, all tween a tween band often actually that all the tweens were into and we'd managed to get some free tickets for them for the next day my daughter and I so she was 11 uh, to go down to Sydney which is an hour and a half plane trip away to go to this before the big concert to kind of a more enclosed small concert and she well we were both really excited so we only got the tickets the day before so I booked the flight and we were needing to get up really early in the morning and she was 
and she's very, she's generally very calm and quite quiet. She was jumping up and down. She was, you know, squealing with delight. I mean, I'm still remembering it now, just so much joy and just like for hours, like literally so excited. And I was just really supporting her and being with her. But I, I didn't really go there as well. I was supporting her. And basically she slept soundly as anything and I was awake all night long only slept a wink Mm. because I didn't do that and it was one of the clearest examples for me of that beautiful innate wisdom and so now I think ever since then I've been like yeah if I feel excited I really I really let myself let myself I really I go with that beautiful excitement I feel it and I express that energy and you know that's part of it isn't it that we are learning what I love about aware parenting is it's so different from most other paradigms it has that deep trust in our bodies it has a deep trust the babies and children naturally know how to feel relaxed enough to sleep we are often fighting against that and the more we stop fighting against that and not only cooperate with that natural process in them but relearn or remember reconnect with that in ourselves and that is the double transformation in all of this isn't it mm-hmm. I love that story. And I also imagine if we were living in, you know, more extended families, that if for whatever reason the energy in your body was just still lingering there, I wonder if there was, you know, grandma there who has said, oh, look, I'll organise your flights. I'll help you get there. I'll make sure you get up on time. I've got this. You can go and do your sleep thing. Would have that also made a difference? Uh, yeah, that w- I'm sure it would have as well. Absolutely. Yeah, just having that. Whenever I do that, remembering like, how would it be that you know, if we had 40 people and everyone's taking care of everybody, like straight away, mm. just the majority of, if not everything in parenting would completely, everything that's challenging would just dissolve away, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I'm not saying bypass releasing the feelings in the body. It's, it's an and. It's like, of course, because otherwise, you know, sleep is really, really hard if you're jumping up and down and excited. So that's why your story is so powerful. And I'm imagining this extra layer of wraparound support, which, you know, we often don't get in these nuclear family contexts. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Such a difference in terms of that deep relaxation to really know that, of course, support and closeness and just knowing I love what you shared all the way through here that if we didn't need to be really being kind of hyper vigilant in a way of mm. just like caring for everybody how much more relaxing that would be um I imagine, yeah, carry on. Go, go. Mm. in that the mother baby died like if the breastfeeding co-sleeping mother is holding that vigil as we've said that baby will also experience some of that because of the you know the reciprocity in that relationship is so powerful like all the mirror neurons are boom 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 firing constantly in sleep as well james mckenna's work if anyone's curious he's an anthropologist who's done a lot of work looking at co-sleeping in a breastfeeding context which is our evolutionary history and just how supportive to health and sleep it is yeah, and I think that's why also I just have so much compassion for so many, it's often mothers, but, you know, dads as well who are practicing aware parenting and just like the hardness of how can we 
be present with our babies and children, joining in with their play when they're playing, laughing at them before bed or listening to their big feelings or holding our baby crying mums. When we have got all this stress sitting in our system, we have all this trauma from all the ways that we didn't get our needs met, you know, all of our feelings not heard. It's a huge thing. And then to often parents say, but my child isn't really crying. Well, you know, it just makes so much sense, isn't it? Because we live in the culture that is, is, all about the repression of feelings and dissociation and we have so much in our bodies it's it's a huge ask to be the holder of that energy when and just to be one or two people doing that as well it's it's Mm. humongous and I think that's where like anyone who is practicing aware parenting like I I truly believe it is the greatest offering to the wider world like to bring children up with this kind of you know upbringing and I know I've shared it with you but I do believe that aware parenting is the greatest mind body in medicine intervention that we can offer the world right now I love that as you know I remember when you said that once I was like can I quote you on that I just think it's so Mm. glorious I want that as a bumper sticker (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much I did also want to talk a little bit about breathing and buteka. This is not aware parenting, but again, it's something that you and I are both passionate about really understanding. And what I love about buteko breathing and their understanding is how when we are in that fight flight state and we are basically hyperventilating that we can almost kind of get stuck in that habitual state of hyperventilation and that can create all kinds of things to go on in the body, both emotionally in terms of often this kind of chronic anxiety or fear, but also physiologically in terms of, again, the the body, for all the reasons you talked about, not having all its most optimal resources available to, to do all the things it needs to do. And so some of the symptoms of that can be things like some of that waking up can be related to that to hyperventilating, mouth breathing, bed wetting. So again, really understanding, of course, too, when we lie down, we tend to hyperventilate more. So for me, also really understanding Buteco and really mapping it together with what I know about aware parenting and what I know about other forms of breath work that use hyperventilation to basically access deep repressed feelings that those kind of triangulate to, to, again, another piece of information that can be so helpful Mm, for parents to help children feel more relaxed in their bodies. Mm, Absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing in around breathing. And you've you've helped me tune into my breathing now. (laughs) Like it's one of the clear ways the body regulates itself. I love how you so eloquently come to your kind of checklist things okay so sleep's a little tricky now we've listened to feelings we've played the lights are dimmed not dark like nature isn't exactly dark at night there's lots of variance in light naturally we've had a warm bath and our body temperature is dropping and then I'm glad you mentioned breathing because I think the other little checklist thing that I also hold in my mind is that 
if any of us, doesn't matter if it's children or adults, if we've eaten particularly a fairly carbohydrate-rich something before bed, that will raise blood glucose. And, of course, so the body goes, oh, we're ready for activity. And so, it, you know, it bumps up the cortisol again. So and that reminds me, do we want to talk about teens as well? I'm glad I said that. Yes, I think that would be wonderful. Maybe that's a good little lead into that point because there's, and I know you and Jess Golden were talking about that wondering of what's, what is it in adolescence and what's the evolutionary function of that later to bed shift that so often happens in adolescence. And I've been really thinking about this through this evolutionary lens and there is, in adolescence, there is a natural tendency to insulin resistance. And that simply means that the insulin receptors that mop up blood glucose and take the glucose into cells ready for energy, they become less sensitive. And that's by design because to enable puberty, you need a certain amount of fat. And in the wild, people are pretty lean. So to have a subtle degree of insulin resistance in puberty is purposeful so that then there's the fat to actually make the sex hormones. But of course, when there's that subtle rise in blood glucose, there's a correlation in a subtle rise in cortisol, which of course correlates with then a subtle decrease in melatonin. But because the body's need for sleep is so great, it delays, it simply just shunts melatonin production back later into the evening because the body will keep working to make melatonin because you know, sleep's essential. But that's the reason for that drift in sleep pattern in adolescence. But it plays out more today in our Western lifestyles because in that natural model, the circadian rhythm from the sun was, is so powerful. Plus any wild food diet doesn't drive insulin resistance, even compared to a pretty ideal Western diet. We just have higher, like even our, our root vegetables have more readily digestible carbohydrates in them now compared to wild yams and things and that's not even mentioning stress in adolescence which of course will bump up cortisol and push melatonin production back and of course it doesn't talk about light and screen use which is also a part of our modern adolescent culture so I thought that was also really nice information for understanding that yes it plays out today but they're the mechanisms underpinning it. And, of course, because we're very cyclical creatures that even that delay in melatonin can persist, you know, beyond that original initiation of puberty because we kind of get used to patterns and it often takes (laughs) the circuit breaker of going camping for a month to reorientate to the natural rhythms of the natural world. Oh, I love that you share that. And when you were sharing, when we were chatting on Voxer about it, I was a bit like, oh, darn, my hypothesis was that, you know, to be off out mating and in those age, that that wasn't it. And uh, Michael. It might have been to some extent. <laughs> like, I don't actually know. <laughs> and Michael, the father of my children, his yeah. hypothesis was to be more like guarding, being up later to be one of the kind of the, the people guarding or noticing whether there's any wild animals around but but yeah, no that was elders um, that, was elders, that, yeah. one. that was elders <laughs> but what you did bring in that we all humans have this lovely variation in their bodies as well like as you mentioned like some people are more 
and use the language night owls and some people are morning, morning larks and that's how a community of people covers off on the night time by having that natural neurological diversity because it's just really important. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I'd only just learned about that the other day, that chronotypes, it was the, oh, I watched that YouTube video. And can you remember the name of the man? Very famous sleep expert. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Dr. Matthew Walker. And he was talking about how that is so that some people would be awake at a certain time and then other people would be awake at a certain time. And again, just it's just so wonderful, isn't it, then to think about uh, each individual baby or child as we do with aware parenting anyway to be looking at each individual that we are all different as well as there, there are going to be these themes but not to always assume that it's that the reason one particular child maybe wants to get up early and the other one wants to stay up late might not all be related to stress some of that might be actually their innate yes absolutely that's an yeah that's a really important point absolutely and you often see it quite young um, it's really a bit of an inbuilt mechanism that that tendency for one way or the other. Oh, really? So when mm. what what kind of when you say young, how young can that be? Uh, I don't know in terms of babies, but children often display that tendency. As in my observation, have you have you observed that? Yeah, I have. I have. Mm. I just wondered if you knew any kind of research or anything. But yeah. there is so little research around this. And one of the dilemmas with all of this stuff is that the records we have, as I mentioned, those ethnographic records, they're filtered through Western eyes and really open to interpretation. So I deeply appreciate the, um, like, you know, I've, I've got an academic research background and what you shared around the highest level of evidence we have to work with with our own children is what we observe. That is fundamental because we cannot, no research study is actually ever going to apply to our N of one, our individual child in front of us. So, you know, I, I don't, I, I imagine there's not a lot of research dollars in hypothesizing about optimal health, which is all got natural inputs and no pharmacological inputs. So it's all, you know, <laughs> it's uh, those studies are really hard to put together uh, and they require decades to look at the chronic degenerative disease takes decades. I imagine for subtle stress response playing out takes like, you know, all that, like the cortisol effects, the elevations in inflammatory cytokines they're what you know they're they're there to be ready to heal the body from a potential wounding but if they're just subtly there in the background it takes decades like the body is does everything it can to heal so when eventually after decades of this stuff going through our bodies you know illness you know can unfold and even then people heal they just usually, there's usually no magic bullet from what I've witnessed. There's this total orientation to feeling their bodies and responding to their body's needs in the moment with the highest quality inputs that are natural and people heal. Yes, again, coming back to that natural body wisdom we are amazing aren't we we are amazing and uh, I find it funny that I was asking if there are any research studies when I just did that episode on the 
on really observation and how yeah that n of one so powerful isn't it and mm. yeah i think too like what you were saying in terms of research research funding for something that's completely innate in other words that natural healing response that we all have it's really it is going to come from us isn't it i think <laughs> and we've been talking about this for years for actually bringing together our expertise in relation to that so it may happen one day but we've still got we've still got our individual research which I still think is the most powerful anyway and I think because I mean this is pretty solid information and for us not to act now because we haven't got some study going yeah got the green light go ahead would be just ludicrous Yes, exactly. Do you know what the other thing I was thinking, I don't know whether you want to share about this, but talking a little bit about the fight flight response and the differences in terms of women. And Sure, sure. So I guess it's not what well, it is sleep, isn't it? Because, you know, if we're stressed, we're not going to sleep. It's that very clear biological trade-off. If you're not going to fall asleep, if you're under danger, it does not make sense. So again, there's not a lot of research, but that, you know, it's well documented the language around a fight, flight, freeze, and the hormonal cascade that plays out in males and women, babies, children, everyone, animals. The difference in, and it's particularly mothers, is that there's oxytocin in the mix and I don't really need to ask, how does that change things? And the language that's being used in the literature around this is there's also a response of tend and befriend. That's the sort of catchphrase language. And that makes sense to me because I'm just feeling into it now. Like we're all going to feel like, okay, there's danger. We're all going to pump out our catecholamines, our adrenaline and our noradrenaline. We're all going to release ACTH from the brain to get cortisol pumping out of our adrenals. We're all going to have elevations in inflammatory cytokines if we get wounded and we need to have an inflammatory response to manage that blood loss. We're all going to elevate our blood glucose. We're all going to shunt blood to our muscles ready for action. We're not going to worry about any regeneration or reproduction. That's just irrelevant to the situation. And women also have oxytocin because in women, well, particularly mothers, particularly breastfeeding mothers, because the survival of their baby is critical as well. So what does that mean? And I would encourage people if they're curious to look at the work of Dr. Sue Carter. She's Stephen Porges's wife. He's polyvagal theory. And there's that idea, because oxytocin, is a powerful stress response mediator and that's the you know it's the bonding hormone and the connecting hormone and it's profoundly anxiolytic it reduces cortisol levels and they're going to a, a conference and sue carter was talking about in the lab squeezing oxytocin onto cardiac heart heart cells like in a petri dish and just watching them regenerate boom like it's powerfully regenerative I think that's how women heal from birth and manage some of the, the, even if it's less because of an aware parenting model and less because of less stress, there's still nighttime waking for feeding reasons. And I think mothers manage that because of oxytocin and its regenerative power. But coming back to the stress response, that turn of offend, like 
you know, both men and women, their systems would be activated. But a mother is not going to drop the baby and go and fight the animal or rescue the situation. I imagine they're going to mediated through oxytocin have you know women are amazingly powerful in their social communication and it's a rapid communication response like it makes much more sense for me if women were gathering together and in danger have all that fight flight freeze response playing out physiologically and rapidly mobilize social connection where they perhaps link arms, throw all the kids in the middle and defend and protect them. No mother will drop their baby to go and fight. And that's, I think, the reality of, you know, when mums are breastfeeding and if they ever get a critical comment, it's like the mummy is just all daisy-eyed and full of connection and love and there's just, you can't respond to that. It's like can't say go away and fight them you're just not physiologically able to do that so I think that mothers in particular have a extra piece in this stress response system and I think we can be conscious of that in parenting like under stress we know in a way parenting the power of empathy buddies like to turn to someone that social connection changes everything and we are able to be with our babies in a really enjoyable way or our children in a really enjoyable way again. Have you got anything you'd like to add to that conversation? Well, no, apart from I was just thinking exactly that piece that you said at the end, like, oh, and of course that's one of the reasons why having an empathy buddy or multiple or gathering together in women's mother circles mm. is so vital and has such a huge effect, not only in the effect of actually getting to share feelings and have needs met for support and community, all these things that we are, you know, innately designed to have, but also because of that beautiful, yeah, supportive oxytocin effect. And I know from over the years, running mothers running facilitating mother's circles and just the gorgeousness of what happens when mothers gather together it's so profound and so powerful and so necessary in the aware parenting journey and deeply stress relieving and deeply stress relieving yes <laughs> yeah Oh my gosh I have loved this conversation mm -hmm. beyond all <laughs> I wonder what we're going to do next. Anyway, is there more that you didn't get to say that you would like to say today? I know we'll be having more conversations, but mm. more today. I feel complete for this, but I, I think it's a really big topic. And I imagine, I mean, be curious if people do share their wonderings in response to listening to this. And I can imagine quite a, an unfolding conversation into the future. Mm, I love that. So I, I wonder, I would love to ask for anyone listening, if you have questions or comments or things that you would like to add to the conversation, please come and share them on social media, I guess would be the most helpful place to do that. So we can continue that conversation. Ah, mm. oh, And Claire Louise, I so appreciate you. I love this so much. And I wonder if you want to share more about if people want to 
find out more about what offerings you have what would you like to share now about that mm, thank you so much <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm like oh contact me in five years time when my daughter's older and I have more <laughs> space <laughs> uh, you might my... have a very, can I, I'm going to interrupt yeah. you very long waiting list by then yeah <laughs> So my details can be found on your site, Marion, under Aware Parenting Instructors. If there's someone out there who's just passionate to connect in that one-on-one way, I do open a very rare space for that if you just feel really like you want to do some more around this work because I'm really passionate about this. And I'm also pretty focused on my daughter and our natural learning environment and reducing stress in our world and going camping whenever we can. So perhaps we'll share in the podcast and, as I said, in a few years' time, I certainly will have more availability. Lovely. I can imagine we're going to be doing things together and, yeah, more will will become clear. But, yeah, thank you so much for this. I've really, 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 really enjoyed it so much. Do you know what? You just suddenly reminded me that one thing we were going to talk about is the napping thing. So I'm actually going to do a PS. Oh, yes, I remember. Because um, I was, as you know, when I was writing the book recently about where parenting and sleep, I thought, okay, I'm going to really, I mean, I'm really happy with my sleep anyway in general, but I thought, Whilst I'm doing this, whenever I feel even the tinsiest bit tired, and of course, I'm in a really different position to you and many parents, my children are 16 and 21, so I can nap pretty much whenever I want to. I don't generally. I just, every so often I'd be writing the book and I'd just be like, oh, I'm just going to lie back now and have a little nap. And it was so glorious. And yeah, you're going to share a little bit about naps as well. Oh, yeah. I just think it's really painful for the body to push through feeling tired. And as we said, no other animal does chronic tiredness. And simply because we're not in a situation where there's someone else around to just watch over the children for a moment in time where you can just in that moment respond to your physiological need, respond to how you're feeling. Very painful not being able to respond to how we're feeling. Aware parenting fundamentally understands that. Yes, it really, really is, isn't it? That that the amount of times that as parents and particularly parents of baby, a baby or younger children, where we're actually overriding what our bodies are telling us. And which, as you know, one of my passions in the Marion method work is in that reparenting work is actually to wherever possible to be reconnecting with that, you know, to have a drink when you're thirsty, if possible, and go to the toilet when you need to. And I know the napping is much, much harder for the majority of parents, but you know, the, the reclaiming of this beautiful innate wisdom that our bodies are constantly signaling to us and the more we're able to reconnect with that and trust that and listen to that, the more well we feel. I was going to say, yeah, in terms of health, that's real medicine. That's really applying medicine in the moment. Exactly. Ah, medicine in the moment. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the biggest of love to you, Claire Louise. Thank I so appreciate you. love this. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. And to the listeners, thank you so much for being here. I'm imagining, I'm so willing for you to have enjoyed this as much as I did. And yeah, big, big love. Lots of love to you, Claire Louise. Thank you, Marion. <laughs>